And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Episode 134 of the Keith Law Show. I will be joined today by Dr. Lee McIntyre, a philosopher who has written several books about our truth wars, including his latest, which I highly recommend, on disinformation, how to fight for truth and protect democracy. Since the last episode of the show, I've had a couple of posts up on the Arizona Fall League, which you can read if you're a subscriber to The Athletic. Right now, I am working on my free agent rankings, a top 50, I will say, after about 35 or so. It's getting pretty thin, um, and so the capsules on the players might get shorter and shorter. I am stunned by how few free agent hitters there are this year who generated at least two war last season. It's, yeah, it's pretty depressing, actually. A lot of pitching, a lot of pitching out there, and obviously, guys, you're going to get paid, but holy cow, the hitting crop is really poor. For those of you who are interested in my board game content, I do have a new review up over at Paste Magazine uh, covering the game Forest Shuffle, which which has been out for about two, three months now. And it is a very cute card-only game with some pretty intense scoring, actually. And I do like the game. It's hard. It's really hard to play well. uh, And you really have to know what's in the deck and plan and also keep an eye on what your opponents are doing so it's good these are all good things to me but it is definitely not a game for everybody you might look at this and say oh cute little woodland creature game it's a nope nope definitely would not play that with the younger ones not something you're going to play with your friends who've never played a real board game before so but i like it i do like it you should check out the review i go a little more into the mechanics and what makes it complex and what makes it so interesting my guest today is Dr. Lee McIntyre, author of the new book, On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. He is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and his previous books include How to Talk to a Science Den- Denier and Post-Truth. Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on. So let me start by saying that On Disinformation is wonderful, and it's since it's such a small book and so concise it's so to the point i want to hand it out to everybody i know but man this book made me feel very pessimistic (laughs) about our future in the fight against disinformation so before i get into some of the the details you go through in the book exactly how screwed do you think we are as a society when it comes to disinformation well well well, let me put it this way uh screwed enough that i needed to write the book but not so screwed that I decided not to write the book, right? Because I wrote the book because I think there's something that we can do about it, that there's still time and that if enough people, uh, you know, grab an oar and start to row on this, that we can do something. 
one of the points of disinformation is to make you feel helpless. And you're not helpless. There are 10 things you can do to fight disinformation. And I outline them uh, in the book. And it's a short read. I mean, you can read it in about an hour. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the idea is I wanted to write a kind of a manifesto, a kind of a training manual to get people, uh, you know, in the mood for, for what they could do. But the problem is dire. And it does, you know, require, um, you know, a lot of cooperation from people who care about it. Yeah, I read this book um, about two, three, two or three weeks ago. And then since then, we've had some dire is the perfect word, some pretty dire news on the climate change front, which obviously ties very closely together with what you discussed in the book. You do discuss climate denial. And it seems like that's a that's pretty closely tied to how the disinformation war even began. So can you tell me a little bit about how this war on facts started mm -hmm why it's been so successful for denialists, even, and for the people you refer to as truth killers, which I love that phrase, even in an, ax, an era of such easy access to good and reliable information. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, look, I'll just say up front, liars and science deniers have been around, you know, from the beginning. Um, but mo I trace the beginning of modern science denial to the, uh, what happened with big tobacco in the 1950s when the tobacco companies were, you know, kind of had their hair on fire, worried about a study that was going to show a link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And they responded by hiring a public relations specialist to advise them what to do. And his advice was fight the science, which they did through public relations, not through science. And that really paved the way. There was a terrific book on this by Naomi Reskis and Eric Conway called Merchants of Doubt. And it, you know, it dubs this the tobacco strategy, which was then followed by the fossil fuel companies and, you know, just basically on every sort of campaign against science since then. And I call this strategic denial because it's not just, you know, I doubt. Uh, it's not just, you know, denying something that's, uh, you know, because you don't want to believe it's true. It's because somebody wants you to believe that it's not true. There's money behind it. There are big interests behind it. And what happened was I finally realized that's where the disinformation comes in. People are not born as science deniers. They're created by disinformers who want them to buy cigarettes or want them to, you know, continue to use fossil fuels. That's where it comes from. And then the real shock was to realize that this was now not just a problem for science, this was a problem for democracy. This was a problem for reality in general, because politicians looked at what was happening in science denial and said, I want some of that. I can do that. That works. Because you and I can look at science denial and think, well, these buffoons. But it was extremely successful. The tobacco companies continued to sell tobacco for 40 years before they were finally busted in front of Congress. Then they paid the $200 billion fine and continued to sell cigarettes. And how long has ExxonMobil and Chevron been going? I mean, Chevron just bought another oil company in which you know they're now saying, oh, we're going to cut back on fossil fuels. No, they're not. They're, they're continuing to, to drill. So, um, you know, this this idea that there are people who create disinformation for their own interest because it's a strategic denial campaign um, is now a thing, both for science denial and for election denial. Um, you know, just to pick a random example, 
And uh, it makes science, it threatens science, it threatens democracy. And I think that the pinch point here is to do something about disinformation. That's where we have to stop it. Once somebody's already a denier, it's pretty hard to change their mind, though I wrote a whole book on this about how to try to do it, how to talk to a science denier. But I think that although it's important, um, it is just as important, if not more important, to stop the flow of disinformation from getting to those people in the first place. So that leads pretty well into my next question. You divide the agents of disinformation to three main groups. You just discussed a little bit the creators. You also refer to the amplifiers, and you say that there, there really is no disinformation, or this disinformation is not that effective without willing amplifiers, and then the believers. Can you talk a little bit about each group, maybe more of the latter two, because you've discussed yeah. the creators, and how do you apportion blame or responsibility to each of them? Because that seems to me, if we're trying to target disinformation, we do need to understand which groups we might hold accountable, yeah. and where, where are those pinch points, as you describe them? So the pipeline obviously goes from the creators to the amplifiers to the believers. Mm -hmm. Most of the responsibility is on the creators. Some is on the amplifiers. Uh, really not very much is on the believers. And, and I say that understanding how frustrating it can be to talk to a vaccine denier or a climate denier. But they are, they're victims. They're victims usually of somebody else's campaign and they're getting nothing out of it. So in terms of moral responsibility, although they may be spreading, you know, the, the lie that somebody else created, they're really not getting anything out of it. Now, in that pipeline, I think that the most effective way to crack down is to crack down on the amplifiers. And that's just simply, it, it has nothing to do with the moral responsibility for it, though amplifiers are morally responsible. It's because I just don't think you're going to be able to get the creators of disinformation to stop doing it. In some cases, they live overseas. So how can you pass an American law? You know, something like that. But it's also in their financial interest. Uh, you know, so when's the last time, you know, you you scolded someone and, you know, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. It's just it's just not going to work. So the most and you're right that disinformation is really effectively useless unless it's amplified. I mean, because, you know, now we're back to the, you know, the guy on the street corner in the tinfoil hat hanging out, you know, mimeograph sheets. Tobacco companies didn't have the Internet, but they had newspapers and they took out full page ads in American newspapers and reached about a sixth of the American population. But it's even easier now. They, I mean, newspapers, yes. But where are newspapers now? They're online. So, and, you know, along with everything else. And so um, social media, cable news, you know, these are all potential amplifiers. And uh, let me put it this way. If you like the analogy about truth killers, they're, uh, they're accomplices. They're not just bystanders. They're accomplices because they're helping to get the, this information out there. And we can talk a little bit, if you like, about, what we can do to crack down on the amplification. But I just want to make it clear that I think that the people who are amplifying disinformation, especially if they know what they're doing, you know, especially if they know that it's disinformation, that it's a lie, they really do bear responsibility. This is not just willful ignorance. They're making a buck on this. 
the I want to drill down just for a second on the vaccine denial point because I've, I've argued possibly fruitlessly for years with anti-vaxxers online, even before COVID. And they are the most confusing of all to me because, as you said, not only are they getting nothing out of this, uh, they're losing. They are that they are worse off yeah. for not getting vaccinated, whether it's themselves, their kids, and also their communities, their families, etc. Yeah. But just yeah. literally, do you want your kid to get measles and maybe die of SSPE twenty years later? It is, and I've, I've argued with a few of these people in person. It's mostly online, um, and who knows? Maybe some of these people weren't real online, but I did try and i've tried the aggressive approach and i've tried the information approach i just cannot understand why they get so locked into this position because as you said there are people in disinformation who have who make a profit from it or uh, have other motivations like election denial but in vaccine denial it's just kind of crazy to me it's like no actually this is safe and effective and will make you not die there, okay, so th- th- this is a topic that's, you know, near to my heart. And because during the pandemic, I mean, I w- it's kind of like climate denial, except it was happening in real time. I mean, fast, you know, climate, climate change can kill us too, but slow. And so I thought, well, no, here with vaccines and, or, and a pandemic, but, but no, it was the same, if not worse than, than climate denial. Look, they're afraid. And when people are afraid, they are easy to manipulate and although it seems awful because it is vaccine deniers are created through disinformation now who would profit from vaccine disinformation who would lie to people during a pandemic to try to get them not to take the vaccine knowing that they might die and yet these people are out there. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the shocking things to realize is that you know everybody knows this claim that there the rumor, the false claim, I should say, that there are uh, tracking microchips in the COVID vaccines. Where did that come from? People, you know, and I asked this question in a ballroom, and I only ever once or twice got a hand up, and it was from somebody in Army intelligence. That false claim came out of a Russian troll farm. Uh, Putin has been fighting American science for years, you know, understanding that it's one way to under uh, to undermine his opponent. He did it on HIV AIDS. He did it on GMOs. I mean, he does he does it on a lot of things. And when COVID came around, he saw an opportunity both for national pride and for profit. Russia has the Sputnik vaccine. I mean, just think about the pride. It's called the Sputnik. And so in April 2020, there was a news story that appeared in a English language online publication called the Oriental Review, which said that um, any future vaccines, because remember, this was April 2020, any future vaccines developed in the West would have tracking microchips in them, courtesy of Bill Gates, who held patent 666 on this technology. And then it said, share on Facebook, share on Twitter, which Many, many people did because by May 2020, CBS News reported that 28% of the American population thought there was something to this. What nobody knew is that the Oriental Review was a propaganda arm of the SVR, which is a branch of what used to be the KGB. That's, That's a shocking, horrible thing because 
thousands of people probably died because they wouldn't take their COVID vaccines because they thought that there might be tracking microchips in them. And Putin did not care. And the people who worked for him didn't care. So that's just an example that shows a, a, you know, a couple of things, which is that uh, disinformation can kill. The amplification of disinformation can, uh, can kill. And that the people who believe it are victims. Now, why is it so hard to convince them? Because disinformation doesn't just convince you to believe something false. It polarizes you. It leads you to distrust the people who don't also believe the same falsehood. And so there, you, you, for all your valiant efforts online and in person over years with all of these science deniers, they're not listening to your facts because they don't trust you because they've been conditioned not to trust you. And so I wonder if you noticed in your own, you know, interventions, a difference between times when you spoke to people face to face and times when you did it online, because online you can kind of, everybody's hiding behind a screen or if not even a pseudonym, right? And so they kind of flame, they get upset. I've always found face-to-face -face conversation is, a, you know, a better way to approach people, even though when things go bad, <laughs> you know, there are consequences, right? But I mean, the thing that I like about face-to-face -face conversation is it builds trust. If you're calm and patient and respectful in your conversations with people, they can't help but kind of like you and then even begin to trust you. And then no matter how bad a monologuer they are about, you know, the 20 things you didn't read, they will eventually say, what do you think? Or don't you think I'm right? And so I think you can build trust in person. I, I've often said, I don't think that deniers have a fact deficit. I think they have a trust deficit. That's an excellent point. Um, it does, I think, lead to lend itself to a different approach, and especially in person when that is when that is possible. When it's possible. Right. Yeah. Um, but you say in the book, you, you discuss this in the book as well. You say that the most effective way to change a de denialist mind is through one-on-one -on -one communication, preferably in person. But you also note that that doesn't really scale. Um, we can all right. try to do that. Right. But do you find – so what, essentially what is your, art, what is your yes. um, response then to so, people who say, hey, that's great, but I can't reach everybody? Yeah, you, it, I say you're right. <laughs> um. And that was the day that I realized I needed to write another book because How to Talk to a Science Denier was trying to solve this problem one-on-one. -on -one. And I thought, well, you know, there are enough people who believe in science that if we all did it, if I could just, you know, put the scientists into action. But I ultimately determined that you can't debunk your way out of an infodemic. There are just too many of them. They're too, disinformation is too virulent. They're creating new deniers every day. And a lot of deniers are very dug in simply by the fact that, you know, once you've been duped, you don't want to admit you've been duped. And I mean, their identity, their ego is at stake. So, they, I mean, you don't find people saying, oh, yeah, I was wrong. You know, how what a fool I've been. They, they just don't do that. And so to me, I, I thought it's not that that doesn't work or that we shouldn't be doing it, because I think, you know, we should. It does work. And we, you know, in some cases, and we should be doing it because it's the right thing to do. But in order to fight to the scale of the problem, I think we have to pinch that pipe in the middle on amplification, which means going after the social media companies, 
going after the liars on cable news, and you know who I'm talking about, um, you know, and try to figure out a way to um, stop so many people from hearing the lie. It, you know, the analogy I think of here is, is an epidemic. You have to treat the sick, but you've got to keep people from getting sick. And ultimately, that's how you're going to stop an epidemic, right? You 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 try to keep it from you know becoming an epidemic by stopping it its in its tracks. And that's what I you know it may be too late for that now. But like I said, new deniers are created every day because disinformation changes every day. And so if we can find out you know some way to stop it or to cut it down on social media, that would help. Unfortunately, the social media companies are going the exact wrong way now. Their Twitter just uh, dismantled its Trust and Safety Council. Uh, Meta just dismantled its uh, Responsible Innovation Group. I mean, they're all rushing to the lowest possible standard, which is Elon Musk and what he's done at Twitter, which is awful. Yeah, it is. I think they all have come to see these efforts as a cost without a without a benefit. Right, there's not going to be profit. There's no profit in cracking down on disinformation on your site, whatever your site may be, social media or other. There's no, it's not a profit center. It's just a cost center. And I think several of these companies are just have just come around and said, "Yeah, we just don't want to spend the money on that because we don't have to." There just doesn't seem to be any consequences yep. for any of these sites. Yeah, it's it's about money. I think it's also about pushback. I mean, they get pushback every time they take something down. Uh, you know, the this whole campaign to say, and I think it is a campaign, I think it's a coordinated campaign, uh, people who are arguing that any content moderation is censorship. I think that some people in social media are just saying, we can't win. If we, you know, if we don't take it down, then we're, you know, th then the left is mad at us. And if we do take it down, then the right is mad at us. We can't win. So we're just going to let everybody have a voice and just, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. Problem is that plays right into the hands of the disinformers. You know, they want a stream where they can get their pollution out into the stream as quickly as possible. And it's it's simply not true that, you know, in, a, in an environment like that, you know, truth will rise to the top. Truth gets drowned out. I mean, even, even Obama believed that a few years ago and since apologized for it, saying he was wrong, and he was. Uh, you know, to think that, you know, the solution to disinformation is just to, uh, you know, have more outlets with more people speaking. Because, you know, if everybody was speaking in good faith, maybe we'd have a chance. But that's not the case. And disinformation is so easy to uh, amplify. I, I mean, not that many years ago, uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found that 65% of the uh, of the uh, uh, anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Yep. I mean, 12 people with a microphone can cause yeah. an awful lot of damage. One of whom is running for president right now. Yes, that's right. That's right. And by the way, he was, uh, RFK Jr. was still platformed on Twitter when Elon Musk came in. So it's not that he was gone and then Musk brought him back. Eight of those disinformation dozen were still on Twitter the night Elon Musk took over. And I know because I was on vacation, but I checked to see, and eight of them were still there, which meant that it, it kind of is, was not his fault that they were there. They were there anyway. I mean, obviously other things are his fault since then.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. So one thing you discuss with the social media, uh, regarding social media companies in particular, uh, is increased regulation. You discuss this several times in the book. You talk about restoring the fairness doctrine, which actually I think I sort of felt old reading that because I realized people 20 years younger will remember it. Uh, You talk a bit about revising Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which shields social media companies and other tech firms uh, from any consequences if there's different disinformation on their sites. This is a tough one for me because there are many activists on the other side, like in the abortion rights movement, LGBTQ communities, who fear that such changes will allow conservative politicians and judges yes. to go after their information, like such as resources for LGBT youths. So how would you balance those two concerns, restricting disinformation without letting the truth killers and their allies using such regulations yeah. for nefarious purposes? It's a conundrum. I mean, they're right to be worried because here's what happens. Any tools that we create to fight disinformation could fall into the hands of the next administration, which may be you-know-who, and will be used in ways that are not actually fighting disinformation, but are fighting things that Trump doesn't like said And he could use them to not only censor, but even to put people in jail. And if you think that's far-fetched, look at Turkey, which is a democracy, but has a law against, and a member of, or arguably a democracy, maybe, uh, um, and a member of NATO, but has a a person in charge who is very authoritarian, and, and, you know, maybe it's arguably not a democracy anymore, um, because their disinformation law criminalizes, um, you know, fake news, disinformation, but they get to define it. They get to say, and so they use it to jail their enemies. They use it to go after dissidents and, you know, critics of the administration. It's worse in Russia. Russia has leaned in to the fight against disinformation, but they're not really fighting disinformation. They're just putting people in jail who are critics of Putin. So, look, This is a very legitimate worry, because when the government has a hand in deciding what's true and what's not, um, then you run the risk of, you know, paving the way, setting a precedent for what an administration that you don't like is going to do. One proposal, and I I talked about this in the the book, but I probably should have said a a little bit more about it, is uh, Stephen Lewandowski's The Cognitive Scientist Idea about more transparency at the social media companies. So say you didn't want Congress to be the fact checker in chief. 
he didn't want them telling Twitter, take this down, put leave that up. You didn't even necessarily want, uh, you know, because you were worried about, and I mean, the First Amendment protects you against governmental censorship. Twitter can, you know, do what they want because they're protected. But, you know, do, how much do you want the government to have a role in this? Well, I think the government has some role, and according to Lewandowski, it should be this. What if Congress uh, mandated not censorship, but transparency, said that the algorithms at Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, had to be subject to expert review by a you know nonpartisan independent panel of academic and other experts who could see whether there was harm uh, in the way that they were tweaking the algorithms, you know, block all the user data because we're worried about people's privacy. But then we wouldn't have to wait for a, uh, we wouldn't have to wait for harm to be done to, in order to crack down. I mean, this would be a sort of a preemptive thing, right? Why is it that we always have to wait for a whistleblower and the horrible damage is done and then we do the reform? Why not have some sort of review of the algorithms in advance? By the way, I think this is coming. I mean, every other technology in, you know, look at the 20th century, when it first started out, it was the Wild West. And then and people misused it. And then they figured out, well, you know, we better have some libel laws, of, you know, apply here. And there better be some standards. And, you know, the the um, we better have the fairness doctrine. You know, things started to be instituted so that it wouldn't get out of hand. And I think that's coming for Twitter and Facebook. The problem is that it might come too late because by 2020, I mean, we've got an election coming up in just a little over a year. And I think that's the watershed moment for when literally this is what my book is about, we might lose our democracy because of disinformation. And so, you know, looking at what Twitter is now doing, which is basically nothing for content moderation, and what Meta is doing, which is not enough and they never have, I mean, they're not even doing as much as they did before the 2020 election. And here it is 2024 when disinformation is better and assisted by AI. So, you know, it, it's it worries me because what what we all just saw was the the disinformation about the um, the missile hitting the parking lot at the hospital in Gaza. How quickly that happened! Just just I mean, Hamas did not used to be sophisticated about the creation and amplification of disinformation, but that was you know a lightning fast viral disinformation campaign and many 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 credible media outlets just screwed up in the way that they handled it and i think that that's a precursor for what's going to happen in the 2024 election we're not people say oh well it's because it's war it's always chaotic in war well maybe it is maybe that's the future of disinformation during wartime i think it's also going to become the future of disinformation during election season which is why we need to uh, do something about it. Meanwhile, you know, I haven't checked the news in the last 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Have they even checked the speaker yet? I mean, yeah, uh, I is there we, anybody? We've got one. Yeah, it's the election. Oh, they did? Yeah, the election denier, Mike Johnson. Of course, that, that could be wrong oh, in an hour. Oh, but it looks like that's who we got, yeah. which is, um, you know, Jim Jordan in, so, in different clothing. So unless, unless uh, the Democrats retake the House in the next election, he will be the one presiding over Congress when the election 
results are read right back to January 6th. And less people don't worry about that. It's in the American Constitution that if there's a disputed election result, it gets thrown into the House where there are no rules and each state gets worked. And in the 2022, um, uh, I'm sorry, in the 2020 election, it was 25 Republican states, 23 Democratic states, and two that were tied. And it takes 26 votes to choose a president. So, I mean, I haven't checked the numbers lately, but do we know, I mean, how confident are we I mean, maybe we got lucky last time. I I don't know. It's it's very it's a very worrisome time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the you know, the technology allowed for deep fakes, and now Congress and state legislatures are, are essentially scrambling to try to find some way to regulate this, or or I guess regulate may not be the right word, but to pass legislation to address these rising problems. And we're seeing, I think it was just yesterday now, some states have uh, banded together to sue Instagram um, for misleading people on the harmful information aimed at young people. And Instagram, which I'm very sensitive to, because I've got three young ones in the house ranging from 17 to seven. Um, you know, only one of whom's on social media now, but it's, it's coming for sure with the other two. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you find that hopeful? Should I see that and say, well, it, at least someone's doing something about this. It, 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 like you mentioned before, it, it, the worry is always that it's maybe behind the scale of the problem and that we always have a tough time calibrating the solution to the scope of the problem. I mean, because we can we can do, screw up either way, either because we're not doing enough to solve the problem or we're you know using a sledgehammer to kill a gnat and then you know we kill the internet or we create a tool that could be used by a future you know fascist leader or something like that so i mean i i'm not of the opinion that well we just need to do something i think we need to you know be thoughtful and targeted about what we do um but you know i mean there are some encouraging signs uh the supreme court uh just i think it was yesterday or the day before um uh, stayed the lower court ruling, which said that Biden and his uh, uh, White House couldn't speak to the even speak to the executives at Twitter and Facebook to you know about uh, dangerous uh, content. I mean, if, if there's danger of public harm, you know they 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 can't necessarily mandate you know do this do that, but they they have to be able to to raise it. I mean, there's I mean um, imagine another pandemic. Uh, you know, imagine a time when. People are dying from disinformation that's, you know, amplified on Twitter. That's, you know, it's very worrisome. Um, so, I mean, there there are hopeful signs. What I what I personally think is that this is only going to be solved when enough people wake up to what disinformation is. And part of the blame here, I think, goes to journalists who often talk about misinformation. The term misinformation, I think, undershoots the problem because it makes us, it's like reporting on a natural disaster. It's like saying, oh, there's this hurricane of misinformation out there. Put your head down. There's nothing you can do about it. But if it's disinformation, then it's intentional, which means it's more like a war. And we can all fight back, you know, in some ways. And again, in my book, I talk about ways to fight back. So, you know, if we're sitting there, uh, you know, in our in our hurricane 
uh, you know, closet, you know, waiting for the storm to pass, waiting for Congress or the, to save us or the social media companies to grow a conscience or, you know, a cable news to get better. Uh, we're in big trouble. I think individual citizens have to take a role in this and with a huge assist from responsible journalists who can say, do you understand that the first, second, and third story on every single broadcast every day should be the crisis that we're in about disinformation because it's behind, you know, everything, you know, all the other stories that you see. Um, there are some journalists who do a great job on this. Um, Nicole Wallace on MSNBC at 4 p.m. every day does a tremendous job. She's one of the few journalists who never uh, mistakes misinformation for dis disinformation for misinformation. Uh, and I mean, there, there are others out there. She's one that I want to flag in particular for her broadcast because she has taken this problem very seriously. She was a Republican spokeswoman for uh, George W. Bush. So, I mean, she's she's no partisan, but she recognizes the scope of the problem. So let's end on uh, on that note. What you you do mention ten steps. You don't have to go through all of them here. Obviously, I recommend yeah. people check out the book. But just generally, yeah. general advice: people who are listening to this podcast, you know, I find my readers do want to be engaged. When I suggest, hey, you might want to contact your mm -hmm. elected officials about such and such a proposal. Um, I do it all yeah. the time. I'm pretty sure Tom Carper's office. They're like, oh god, this guy again. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I live in Delaware. It's a small state. We don't even have a million people. So that means proportionally, right? I have a little yeah, more. You've got more influence. Right? Why not? Um, we know our state rep and our state senator and I've met the governor. I mean, it's, we can, I can have a little more. It's not necessarily influence in the, in the broader sense, but it means I can be involved. Um, yes. And that feels great. What can, what, what, what's your general advice to listeners uh things they can do yeah. as individuals to try to fight yeah. disinformation okay so first thing threshold admit you're in an information war the united states has been in an information war for decades and you know here we are and you know that that's what we're in so uh you, you know admit where we are and that there's something that you can do some of the most effective excuse me, some of the most effective things that I think you can do are to protest. I mean, look at how effective the Women's March was and, you know, putting up some, some guardrails, even after Trump was already in office. But, I mean, you can protest in print, too. You can, um, so here was an idea from uh, Joan Donovan, one of my colleagues at BU, that I thought was enormously clever. You don't necessarily write to Elon Musk or to Mark Zuckerberg you write to their advertisers. You write to the companies that without whom they wouldn't be in business. You write to PayPal. You write to Akamai. You write to Venmo. You write to you know GoDaddy. All of these platforms that are this layer cake, uh, you know that is the internet. So we we see you know YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. Those other companies maybe we have a little interaction with, but if they were to get hand letters a week complaining about the disinformation on Twitter, they might well decide to do something. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is, if you think that's not the case, um, they lost advertisers at Twitter not so long ago, and it caused a real conniption fit over there. 
because all of a sudden they realize must realize you can't just say and do anything you want. You know, the, the advertisers, advertisers can vote with their feet. I think that there's, you know, there's a sense in which if you if you complain to the right people, they might be able to put some heat on, uh, you know, on uh, um, Twitter and Facebook. If, you know, if you brought the responsibility home to, uh, you know, some of the web web service providers, they, they might begin to think, yeah, you know, we do have something to do with this. So that's one thing that I would recommend. Look, there are nine, eight or nine other ones in the book, you know, other things that people can do, some of which, you know, advice that I give by way of moral support. But you can also write to your, you know, people in Congress. You can also, um, you, you know, go protest. I mean, there there are other things that you can do. Mostly, I wanted to write this book because I wanted to raise people's consciousness about disinformation being the source of the problem. You know, if people think we live in chaotic times. You know, I I don't understand what's behind it. I think what's behind it is that there are foreign and domestic actors with something at stake who are feeding, systematically feeding lies that are getting laundered through the um, the news that we all watch and making us believe false things, feel polarized, and feel helpless and cynical. And you can take, you, you can begin to do something about that. My guest today has been Dr. Lee McIntyre, who's the author of the new book on disinformation, how to fight for truth and protect democracy, which I highly recommend, not the least because you can fit it in your back pocket. Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Before I go, I do want to, uh, I have a little rant here. The Diamondbacks uh, beat the Phillies uh, last night as I'm recording this. Uh, the last game, Game 7, uh, was uh, it was Tuesday night. I'm recording this on Wednesday. And congrats to the Diamondbacks. They just outplayed the Phillies the last five games quite handily uh, in a lot of different ways. But my God, did Rob Thompson give away a series that the Phillies should have won. Uh, and that's not to say the Diamondbacks weren't good or don't deserve it. I don't want people to take it that way. But the Phillies were up two games to none. And Thompson's poor decisions, in-game decisions, may have cost them two different games. Games four and seven were quite winnable. The Phillies had a lead in both of those games. And Thompson made multiple mistakes. I cannot get over the fact that he planned game four essentially as a bullpen game. And just did not seem ready for it at all. Um, and left his two, two, they had two starters on the postseason roster, on the, the roster for the LCS. Michael Lorenzen and Taiwan Walker, both of whom could have given them some length after he chose to take Christopher Sanchez out with a pretty quick hook, actually. Uh, he didn't go to, he didn't use his long men at all, decided to empty the entire bullpen, even though some of those guys had pitched the day before, even though there was another game the next night when he might have needed those guys. And ended up putting in some of his worst relievers and guys particularly who always have th- trouble throwing strikes, like Gregory Soto, like Orion Kirkring, who I like a ton for the long term, but he's a rookie with erratic control, like Craig Kimbrell, who, if you're going to point to any one player, he may have done more to cost the Phillies the series than anybody. Uh, Nick Castellanos didn't help either. And then we get to Game 7, and Thompson, uh, Thompson really just does not seem to grasp the idea 
of starters losing effectiveness each time they turn the lineup over. Third time through the order is it, it is a real effect. I have said this on Twitter a, a week or so ago. It is entirely possible to lament the fact that starters don't go as deep into games anymore because of this and to accept that it's real and it's good strategy. And he left Ranger Suarez in. Suarez gave them everything they could have asked for, let him face the top of the Diamondbacks order for a third time. That cost them Phillies the lead. They would never recover from that. Thompson also had a situation where the bases were loaded with two outs, and he let Johan Rojas, who can really play defense and really run, face Brandon Fott right on right, and Rojas had a completely non-competitive at-bat. It was Phillies were up 2-1 to one at that point. They had a chance to break the game open. I understand Jake Cave, Christian Pache. It's not like Ted Williams was on the bench, but they're better bets than Johan Rojas. They're better bets to just put the ball in play. Maybe something happens. If you get into that situation, it's two to one. Base hit probably makes it four to one. And maybe you can keep the rally going because Kyle Schwarber was on deck at that point. Maybe you create enough of a lead that you end the game, effectively end the game. And you can manage very differently from that point on with a three or four run lead than you do with a one run lead. And and as I said, he didn't really manage like he had a one run lead. He let Suarez face, I believe it was Marte and Carroll for a third time and it bit him. Um, And Suarez gave up a hit to Emmanuel Rivera, which I would say not great, but it happens. Letting him face the top of the lineup for a third time though, it just completely contrasts the way he managed in game four. So, which says to me, I don't, I don't think there's a process here. I really don't think there's a philosophy. I don't think there's an understanding of this effect. This is very real. I don't know where this came from, right? I don't know the inner workings of the Phillies organization. I don't know to what extent some of this was dictated from above him and to what extent this was him making decisions by himself in game. It certainly looks from the outside like he is winging it or following his gut because those two, the way he managed those two games they were not consistent. They were both wrong in different and, and interesting ways. Um, but, you know, they had a lead somewhat late in game four. They had a lead early in game seven. Seeded the opportunity to tack on some more runs, extend the lead, immediately gave up the lead because they left Suarez in too long. And that was it. That was that was the game and that was the series. And I just haven't seen enough conversation about that. Um, there's certainly a lot of criticism of some of the Phillies hitters, particularly who didn't show in the series, and that's fair. Trey Turner had some pretty horrible at-bats himself. Castellanos obviously was awful pretty much all series, certainly after the first two games. those That is fair, and it is completely not just fair, but I think important to emphasize Diamondbacks played great. They absolutely, they outplayed the Phillies. They took more competitive at-bats one through nine than the Phillies did, particularly the Phillies right-handed hitters who were just not, who just kind of no-showed for the last five games. But Thompson really didn't help. And I think the Phillies could have won in spite of some of these players underperforming if Thompson had made some better choices. Maybe they don't. I think I'm just particularly attuned to catch managers when they do things that are sort of counter to available evidence but those things really stuck out to me in, in a, what the heck are you doing? And Lavulo outmanaged him. He really did. So credit to Tori Lavulo. I think it's fair for the Phillies to ask some questions about Thompson and whether he is the right in-game manager going forward. He may be great with the people, with the individuals in the clubhouse. But boy, did he struggle in close games in this series. And to me, he is the big factor in why the Diamondbacks are going to the World Series and not the Phillies. Or maybe I should rephrase. He is the factor why the Phillies aren't going to the World Series. Diamondbacks are going to the World Series because they played great. 
I don't want to take anything away from them. It's just the Thompson stuff really stuck out. Okay, rant over. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Stay safe. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.